You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Not so bad. Yourself? I am ready to start traveling again. I mean, we, I know <laughs> we've talked about this. The funny thing was I used to be the first guy to get burned out from being on the road too much. And we, I would consider us road warriors. Uh, but now it's been a year. I mean, we're coming up on the one year anniversary where you and I were out at a client and um, they sent us home <laughs> or they sent us back to the hotel and said, don't come in tomorrow. So it's been a year that we've been in this pandemic. So um, that we have not traveled in that entire time. We've not traveled for business and I am, I'm ready, man. I miss it. Yeah. I feel the same. Uh, and I guess we should point out it was not because of anything we did from a client perspective, right? <laughs> uh, they closed the offices and sent us back to our hotels for the last day of some meetings that we had. So uh uh, shout out to Jason and Connie, if you guys are listening. Uh, hopefully it wasn't us. <laughs> Although I did have allergies the day before, which That's right, was, you did. That was terrible timing to have allergies. Um, you know, and I told him there's so like I even offered, I was like, hey, I'll, you know, this is just allergies, I promise you. But if you want me to work from the hotel, I'm happy to do it. Um, and we powered through the rest of the day. And then the next day, they ended up closing all their offices. And uh, that was really kind of the beginning of the lockdown, I think, for for a lot of folks. And that was in DC at that point. So uh, yeah, I was supposed to be in Atlanta actually the following week. So that was a Thursday and I was supposed to be in Atlanta on Monday and over the weekend, everything just kind of emergency just got shut down. We stopped all travel and that was it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I'm looking forward to get on the road again when it's safe to do so. And I'm glad you brought that up because that ties in pretty well with one of the things we want to talk about, which is Identiverse. Um, so maybe we just kind of of, you know, we'll, we'll tease that a little bit because I think there's a component there that people might be interested in uh, that's happening later this year. Um, yeah, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that for right now. Okay, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Why don't we introduce our guests because we have a very interesting topic that I personally find of great interest. So I'm probably going to be peppering her with a bunch of questions and nagging her with a bunch of stuff. Uh, we want to start to try to introduce some other information security concepts and things that, that we think are interesting, but still relate to the identity management space. And one of those is penetration testing. This is something that comes up uh, as we're having conversations with you know, CISOs and CIOs, and uh, is something that comes up quite a bit as far as being able to identify weaknesses within the organization. So uh, to help us with that conversation, I wanna introduce folks to Chrissy Safi. She's the Managing Director and Global Practice Leader for Attack and Penetration Testing at Protivity. Very fortunate to have her here. Thank you so much, Chrissy, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pepper you with a whole bunch of probably nerd questions at some point, but before we get into that space, uh, one of our questions that we always like to ask folks is typically, how did you get into IAM? Now, in your case, right, we're probably talking more about information security and in, in specifically pen testing or penetration testing. So maybe you can walk us a little bit through, you know, how did you get in, into InfoSec? And then specifically on the pen testing side, is it something that you chose or did you choose it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, really the long story short is, InfoSec chose me. It kind of happened by accident. Um, 
I was in college. I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, and I was supposed to be a biology major. I got into my uh, junior year um, at the university studying biology, and my biology lab professor noticed that I was better at fixing the lab computers than doing the actual science experiments. And so he suggested that I might want to reevaluate my career path. So he wasn't wrong. Um, I struggled with chemistry and biology, so I switched my degree over to information systems. And I was concerned it was going to take me six years to do my undergrad. Um, but I promptly got a call shortly after I changed my degree and put my resume up on the university's tracking system. I got a call from IBM about an internship opportunity doing workstation security auditing at a major site in Boulder. And I took took advantage of that opportunity and they promised that if I just got my undergrad degree in anything, they would hire me on uh, to the security team. And as a pen tester, I had during my internship transitioned over to the pen testing team. So I completed my degree in Italian and uh, IBM hired me and that's where I got my start. Now, since then, um, I've had a lot of different positions in the InfoSec world. Um, in fact, there was a short time in my career that I was working with Tivoli Identity Manager and Tivoli Access Manager, if you know those tools. Um, I was in the offering management side building services um, around how to deploy and really operationalize those tools. And, and you know, that was that was a while back. Um, and then I've had various positions uh, since then. I had a short stint with the U.S. government doing uh, embassy uh, infrastructure security at embassies. Um, and I most recently joined Pertivity in early 2020 as a managing director and the practice leader for our tech and pen practice. And it's been a really great career. And I, I couldn't be happier for accidentally falling into this world. It's so fun. It's so interesting every day. I think that's what a lot of us find is, you know, you're in college for communications or my case, political science, your case, Italian. And then what you find is, wow, I'd be a lot more employable in computers, whatever the, whatever area of computers that happens to be. But security is such a great uh, place as we found. Now, mm -hmm. Jeff kind of mentioned that, you know, we obviously focus on identity and access management with this podcast. And what we've, we thought was, look, our listenership is the IAM practitioner, kind of in air quotes, and that can mean a lot of things, but folks who fo focus on identity and access management. And so they may, you know, all of our listeners may have a different understanding of what penetration testing is. So let's start there. Give us what is penetration testing and then kind of transition into, you know, specific to IAM. Are there any differences in terms of how you do penetration testing for IAM systems versus other systems? Or, you know, maybe if you can just kind of provide that tie-in from penetration testing, what is it? Yeah, absolutely. So I love talking about what is pen testing and how does identity and access play into that? They're so related. Um, and let me explain why. So first of all, pen testing. So the more kind of generic term for what we do is offensive security or security testing. And there are different types of it. Okay. So you might do um, scanning um, on one particular target versus full manual pen testing on another target. 
So it really depends on things like, um, you know, what what does that asset or that target have from a data perspective? Um, you know, what could impact be if that system was breached? So we really look at like a risk-based model when determining what type of security testing to do on a given asset or a target. Now, when we really talk about pen testing and we're talking with our clients about pen testing, it's important to understand that that is a manual security test. Okay, so it's not scanning, it's not running scanners, um, things like that. It really is a manual approach and it can be done against anything. So applications, networks, mobile devices, IoT devices, um, you know, pretty much anything. It could be, um, you know, anything out there that especially is connected in some way that could have value to a criminal. Um, and then in some cases, there is an element of social engineering as well to our pen testing engagements. So think things like spear phishing, um, you know, putting together ruses that'll get somebody to click on a particular link and hand over credentials. Um, so that's, that's really how we look at um, pen testing and what it is. Now, from a you know, kind of a process perspective and tools and techniques, you know, something that's really important to recognize is that, yes, there are methodologies out there, um, you know, whether it's PTES or the MITRE ATT&CK framework, um, a lot of firms follow those kinds of methodologies, but pen testing really is more of an art than a science, okay? It's not a paint-by-number kind of process. Um, it's really about the mindset of the person, of the tester. Um, and, you know, how did, how does their brain work? Are they inventive? Are they curious? Are they always wanting to solve problems? Um, do they, you know, they really want to know how something really works and then kind of flip it and say, how did the designer not intend for this thing to work and then poke at that? And, you know, really our ultimate goal as hackers and as pen testers is, you know, we want to identify and report on security vulnerabilities um, so that the organization can fix those before a criminal finds them and uses them for personal gain. So I'm, I'm fascinated already. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to kind of dig into this a little bit. You mentioned a few different things. Uh, the first one being that this is more of an art than a science. And the way that I guess I kind of took that is, you know, really trying to combine the exploits that you know with thorough knowledge of systems to, again, get to a result that the designer of the system did not intend. Would that be accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. And wh why I said at the beginning why there's this big identity and access part is that most of the breaches are related to the compromise of credentials, um, you know, stolen passwords, things like that. So there's a, a very big component there. And you know, since that is where most breaches are starting from, or that's how they occur, it is naturally one of the first things pen testers seek out because that's what criminals would do. Okay. So by kind of dive into that a little bit more, uh, you know, it's easier to go undetected as a hacker. Um, if you can use a legitimate username and password to gain access. All right. So you might ask, you know, how does one go about even getting access to a legitimate username and password if we're not talking about some kind of insider threat situation, we're really talking about an outside criminal. So there's a few different ways that that can be accomplished. 
And I'm going to, I'm going to keep it simple because uh, if we get down too much of a technical rabbit hole, I'll probably get tripped up here too. But some of the most uh, basic ways are through brute force. So password guessing. And what's really crazy that this is still an issue is that we do a lot of what we call open source intelligence gathering. So we look at publicly available information about people and we try to guess their passwords because people are still using passwords like summer 2020 or one of the one of the most common passwords right now is coronavirus 2021 or coronavirus 2020 or you know something with um, kind of what's happening in our world um, even you know election related words things like that so we're able to often brute force people's passwords just by understanding uh, the person you know, what are they posting out there on social media or maybe even on LinkedIn and then um, getting in that way. And then another way that is just, it's crazy is the spear phishing. So social engineering. So how can we trick users into basically handing over their username and passwords? Okay. So one of the coolest ways that I've seen recently is with the move to being remote. Uh, if you think about like the real estate world or the building um, industry, you know, sellers, salespeople are hungry to sell properties, to sell, you know, houses, to sell new builds, whatever. And so a lot of these sites now have ways that you can interact with the sales folks or the agents um, via chat. And we have been able to exploit that um, and get these folks, these agents to install things on their system, things like key loggers, or then we can capture their username and passwords. Um, so it, it's really fascinating or just, you know, upload other kinds of malware that lets us have a foothold and pivot to other parts of their environment. Um, and, you know, that then really gets back to, you know, user awareness training, but you know, we are very focused on creating the best ruses that we can out there that are so convincing and humans are very nice. And if you can tap into, you know, that, that, that thing that they, that they want, whether it's to help or to buy something or sell something, um, we've been very successful. It sounds to me like almost the ideal person for this role is someone who has the ability to think like a criminal, but at the same time, has the mortal moral fortitude that they're not a criminal. Exactly. You're exactly right. I mean, attacker mindset is something you hear often when, you know, talking to people in my industry or when I'm looking to hire people, you know, how how does their brain work and what are their intentions? So how does someone get into penetration testing? Is this something that requires a, a lot of background in the different skills? Is it something that it is the mindset more so than the skills, or maybe it's a little bit of both? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both. And I would say it's even more the mindset. So back when I was in college, there, there was no cybersecurity courses or things like that. There was, you know, some SANS courses and some certifications and things like that, but um, you couldn't really get a college degree or a certificate in this. And so back then, you know, it was, it was about networking. It was about going to conferences, um, doing these online courses and things like that. These days we're seeing, you know, much more availability of different degrees or programs um, where you can, you know, go to a educational institution, if you will, and, um, and learn. Um, but when I'm looking for people, it, you know, if it's, if it's 
kind of the younger generation just getting started. Um, I look for passion, really. You know, how passionate are they about this industry? What have they done on their own time? Do they have a GitHub where they have some open source information and open source tools out there? Um, have they been to DEF CON? Um, things like that. Just, you know, have they taken, there's, there's a ton of online free resources. So some of my favorites are like hackerhighschool.org. Um, uh, OWASP has a lot of different training and actual like exercises that you can go through to uh, look at web app. Uh, vulnerabilities. So, so for me, if it's, you know, someone that's come along um, or someone that's just interested in getting started, really, um, it's about that passion. That's what I look for. And those are some of the resources they can start to use to, you know, get, get up to speed and really learn and see if this is something that might be interesting to them. And then the technical stuff can come later. Um, it's definitely important. Um, but if you don't have the right mindset and the right passion and that curiosity going into it, I don't think you can be as successful. I think that natural curiosity probably lends itself well to this type of role. You mentioned a few mm -hmm. different resources that that um, you're familiar with. Uh, one of mine is I like Reddit, <laughs> and there is a <laughs> subreddit called How to Hack. I'm not exactly sure what they're talking about sometimes, but I find it extremely valuable to peruse through the uh, different topics and educate myself as much as I I want to be. I guess at this point uh, on some of the different paths that people are taking. So that's probably another good resource if, if folks are interested mm -hmm. out there is check out the uh, the how to hack uh, subreddit. Um, I like that one. There's there's a lot of good stuff. And there's even tutorials, right, on how to exploit certain things. And obviously, these should be done where you have permission to do so. <laughs> so we don't get into trouble or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, but that is definitely something because I find it, it can be difficult just to keep up with the space and mm -hmm. all the different things that are, you know, at risk or could be at risk from different systems. It seems like there is, you know, some zero day exploit happening on a weekly, if not daily basis. And you're probably a lot closer to it than, than I would be. But what are some of the techniques that you use to kind of stay sharp in this space to be able to apply what you know with that curiosity mindset of how to break it? Sure. Yeah. So it is, it is challenging to stay ahead of things in this space. So Actually, what I've done with my organization is I have leaders in the different areas and their job is to stay focused on, you know, what are the latest, greatest things. So, for example, I have a person who is our head of application security, a person who's head of network pen testing, someone who's the head of red teaming, someone who's the head of social engineering. And that's their job to really stay informed you know, what's going on? What's the latest? Are there vulnerabilities out there? Um, I also have a tools team that weaponizes vulnerabilities that we can use on our engagements. And um, we, you know, are starting to put out more thought leadership. So, you know, when I started here at Pertivity, um, it was a really solid business, a great business, 15 plus years of doing pen testing. Um, but, you know, Pertivity wanted to take it to the next level. And so, you know, I came in and, and, you know, my focuses are really on, you know, one of the focuses I should say is really on that external promotion and getting, making sure people know what it is that we are doing out there um, and that they've heard of Pertivity and our thought leadership. And so, again, I, I focus people in these key areas so they can stay up on the latest and greatest in that particular area. 
And then we have a lot of, you know, internal like sharing of information. We do a lot of lunch and learns. We do a lot of webinars, things like that. So we're sharing information across our team as well across, you know, the different verticals um, and, and into the broader security and privacy. And, you know, people are very interested, just like you said, Jeff, in pen testing and what it is we're doing. So we never have a shortage of audience members for um, our topics. So this was really interesting conversation because kind of my mindset or my understanding of penetration testing was there's a lot more of it like automated. And maybe I was thinking of scanning and just calling mm -hmm. that penetration testing. So I'm going to combine a couple of questions here. Um, but one is, you know, so when should organizations be doing penetration testing? It, it seems like there's almost a value to doing it 365 days a year at some level. Uh, or do you kind of see this as, hey, new systems rolling out, that's a good time to do penetration testing. And then also kind of back to like what I was thinking about with that scanning or the automated penetration testing was, all right, I'm going to roll out a new system. I'm, I'm going to hit that system to look for known vulnerabilities. And I'm going to come up with a spreadsheet of here's 150 vulnerabilities I found. And you've got some associated framework to kind of classify what was found anywhere from like low to high and critical, and that the organization would have some methodology to kind of decide, all right, all the highs and criticals need to be closed before we're allowed to go live, something like that. Is that a similar framework that you use with penetration testing or um, is it something different than that? Yeah. So, I mean, that is one of my favorite topics. So we call it vulnerability management. So, you know, when you're getting these hundreds of thousands or millions of vulnerabilities and you're like, what do I do with all these? Where do I even start? Um, you'll hear, you know, vulnerability management and what is your vulnerability management program? Um, things like that. And so, you know, we try to help clients to figure out how to prioritize those vulnerabilities. So there's a lot of, you know, commercial off-the-shelf products out there um, to do scanning. Um, we'll just, we'll just leave it at scanning for right now. Um, but how do you, how do you prioritize those? So some of the things that we integrate into our client scanning results are their asset information. So do they have a CMDB? Can we help them make sure that their CMDB their asset database is robust with information on, you know, all of their assets, what kind of data lives on them, what kind of criticality are they, um, things like that, that would be part of the equation, if you will, for figuring out how to prioritize fixing those vulnerabilities. The next most important part is weaponization of vulnerabilities. So when you run that scan and you get that big list, which ones are actually being targeted by criminals? That's very important. And they're being targeted and those should probably be moved up on the list. So it's a combination of prioritization or sorry, it's a combination of the weaponization of the vulnerabilities out there by the criminals and the asset criticality. And then we re-rank how those things should be addressed. Now getting to kind of when and, you know, when would you do pen testing? What are kind of the, you know, best practices out there, things like that. So, I mean, generally, um, you know, when you're talking about the AppSec world, you know, you'll hear buzzwords like DevSecOps and shift left and things like that. And, you know, it is important that there is a security, um, um, you know, like a vulnerability testing process 
throughout the AppSec life cycle um, and, you know, getting those vulnerabilities remediated during the development. It's a lot less expensive to get vulnerabilities remediated during the development of an application than after it's been released into production. So we do a lot of work in helping clients to set up those kinds of programs um, and they're continuous, um, continuous, um, you know, development, continuous remediation of the vulnerabilities, things like that. From a pen testing perspective, now there's a lot of drivers for when you might do something um, like a pen test or the different levels of pen tests. So compliance is a huge driver. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of regulations out there require that a company do a vulnerability assessment, maybe a scan um, or some level of pen testing. And it usually dictates the frequency as well. Sometimes users demand testing. So we do a lot of product testing for third-party security products. And those product companies must provide to their consumers that their product has been tested. And so we provide that kind of information um, in support of, of those companies that we support of those clients. And then, you know, then we're, we're starting to see, finally, I should say, um, a shift from it's just like a compliance check the box to people actually care about security and they don't want to be a headline in on the news. So, so they want to know, they want to get them fixed, they want real security for their users and for their data. Um, and then most interestingly, lately, I have seen a big tick uptick in MNA driving testing. So a lot of acquisitions happening out there right now and companies don't, they wanna know if they're inheriting a security mess, if you will. So are they inheriting a breach? Are they inheriting, um, you know, poor maybe application development practices without, you know, security integrated into it or lack of pen testing or security testing, um, things like that. So that's kind of a really fun space for us because it's really, it's very fast and, you know, trying to identify any material weaknesses that a company might need to know about. Um, we obviously don't make that determination, but providing, you know, that to the, um, to the company that's doing the acquisition, um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun space. Did I cover all of that, Jim? Yeah, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. Very important. Okay. Um, but I just wanted to ask a follow-up, or it's more of a comment than a question, which is around that MA um, kind of headline news a couple of years ago was a major uh, hospitality chain bought another hospitality chain. Um, the the acquired company was breached, and but all you heard about was the acquiring company's name, right? Because the breach may have happened months down the road after the acquisition. However, um, it takes several months before you can just kind of merge everything together from a, mm -hmm. a IT perspective. So at least I think one of the keys is understanding the risk, right? Understanding what the vulnerabilities are and and getting ahead of it from that perspective. Yeah, exactly. And then having a process for how do you uh, how do you integrate that acquisition into the parent company's processes? So you know, do they need to be added to the vulnerability management program? Um, you know, what frequency of testing needs to be done? What is already being done? It's yeah, having that integration process, which we're seeing, um, I'm glad you mentioned it, a lot of in combination with this M&A activity. So it's not only, am I inheriting poor security practices or a, an existing breach? 
um, then how do I integrate them successfully into my existing processes to ensure we don't end up on the news, you know, a year or so later because we didn't do that effectively. So when you're going through this process, you know, obviously we're interested in the identity side of things. And you mentioned a couple of things earlier around, you know, social engineering and methods to obtain, you know, access to people's accounts, right? Because it is easier to move around when you're a known quantity versus this foreign account that just appeared. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit about some of the other identity components, maybe that you've got some experience with that, you know, folks who are listening today should be aware of. And bonus points, if you can talk about maybe how a team might go about weaponizing some sort of identity compromise. I don't know about that last part, Jeff. Um, <laughs> That's why I said bonus points. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So, um, so yeah, so from an identity perspective, you know, and any kind of tips there. So, you know, what, what we're seeing in our pen testing um, engagements is most, most of the vulnerabilities are around identity and access management issues. I'm sure you've got missing software patches and, you know, you know, leveraging those, exploiting those to gain access and such. But, um, you know, I mentioned one of the first things we start with is can we get valid credentials? And so naturally then there is a lot of findings on the identity and access space. So, you know, these may sound pretty basic to some of the practitioners that are listening here, um, but these are some of the basics that are not, you know, being done well that allow us to, you know, gain access to data or, you know, whatever the objective is that the client has set. So things like password strength and just rotation of passwords, um, multi-factor, uh, multi-factor authentication. Um, it is, is an implemented or this is, this is actually a really interesting story too. So um, one company that we were working with recently had multi-factor implemented and, you know, it was, it was the type where, uh, you know, the person is logging in and then they get a text or a pop-up from like an authenticator on their phone and they have to click agree to allow, allow uh, the access to be given. And you, we had, we had employees actually clicking accept, even when they weren't the ones initiating that request. So it was granting us access to their environment just because they were clicking accept. So MFA fail or what? Um, <laughs> um, for really interesting, and you know, the client was like, "Can't fix stupid." I don't know. Um, am I allowed to say that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then you have you know principles of least privilege. So we see where companies are not, you know, auditing or revalidating the need of that particular account. Maybe somebody moves on to a different position within the company, but the privileges that they had in the previous role are never revoked. So they have more access than they should have, or people leave the organization and that access isn't revoked. So some of some of the most basic things we're still seeing. Um, and, you know, we're, we're encouraging you know, as part of our re recommendations or remediation results is to really, you know, look back at that IAM strategy, you know, adopting that mindset of, you know, zero trust and, and things like that. You know, we had uh, Dr. Chase Cunningham on a couple of episodes ago. And one of the, one of his key points he was making was that the attacks are moving downstream. So maybe they were 
you know, the, the kind of the high value targets like government organizations, utilities, financial institutions, they've been investing so heavily in information security that it takes a PhD in hacking to attack those companies. So a lot of the hackers are moving downstream, down a level to other organizations who, you know, there's still value for to be stolen from those organizations, but maybe they don't have all these great things in place. And if you go further down the chain, companies are more underinvested uh, in, in security and MFA, kind of some of the basic blocking and tackling and those hacks get easier. And while you might not be pulling thousands of credit card numbers or millions of, of credit card numbers, for example, you can still get valuable data that can be sold and monetized. Is that what you're saying as well? Yep. Yep. Exactly what we're saying. Right on. Great, great. So so let me shift topics a little bit. So um, one thing that I, I think everybody who's listening is probably seeing in their own workplace um, or with the clients they work with is that um, in mass, organizations have been moving services to the cloud, right? And so I'm wondering when an organization is using a cloud-based service, like a SaaS service for whether it be HR or anything, um, and you're looking at your penetration, penetration testing program, um, are any of the methodologies that you use different because it's a cloud service versus something that the organization is running themselves? So overall, the methodology is actually the same. Um, so where, you know, one, some of the nuances, I should say, to testing, uh, you know, a SaaS application or, you know, something in the cloud is historically, you had to go get permission from the third party every single time. Um, but I think AWS and Azure and all them kind of got annoyed with all of the like notifications and requests that someone was going to do a pen test um, on an application that lived in their environment that now there's just, you know, um, it, it's understood that that's going to happen and you don't have to get permission every time. But if you are looking at, you know, smaller mom and pop or not mom and pop, if you are looking at other applications like, like an HR tool, like a workday or something to that effect, um, we, we do request that our clients get permission from that third party to conduct that testing. We do not conduct testing on a third party product without that. Okay. So then once we've got kind of those uh, things settled, um, one of the next kind of big differentiators is the level of access that we're granted. So when we're testing a SaaS application, we often don't get the source code or pretty much never get the source code versus um, an on-prem deployment. Sometimes we have that access. So the highest role that we have when testing a, an application in the cloud is maybe like a tenant admin versus a sysadmin. So, um, and then we also don't have as much access to the developers in a cloud deployment than we do on an on-prem deployment. So we kind of look at it, it's more of like a black box approach. So it's a little bit more, you know, we got to go do a little bit more intelligence gathering and, you know, determining kind of what attacks could we throw at this thing than we were used to seeing in the on-prem world. I would imagine that open source intelligence or OSINT, as I think it's typically called, right, is yeah. something that is of great value when you're trying to approach something where you don't have really a good knowledge of how something works. Mm -hmm. 
it sounds like that's that's the way I'm thinking at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is exactly right. Um, OSINT is one of, I think, kind of the most interesting parts of pen testing too. And, you know, learning what is out there just publicly available. Um, we also have um, access to a dark web provider. And so as part of our reconnaissance that we're doing, you know, in line with OSINT is we're searching the dark web for information, what kind of credentials, um, compromised credentials are out there uh, that we might be able to leverage. And, you know, I, I don't know if this problem is ever going to go away with people reusing passwords. Um, but when you have that, this is why it's so important to not reuse passwords is because, you know, it's, it, it's possible that that username password combination has already been compromised and is available in the dark web. And then we can simply lift that out of there and use the same information to gain access to the corporate network. Yeah. I've seen a lot of products recently, uh, you know, tout their ability to have access to compromised passwords. Right. And then as part of a mm -hmm. product, they can either flag the user or, you know, prompt them to change a password or whatever it may be, which yep. can be irritating for the end user. <laughs> But I'm sorry, your your email address and that password apparently is already out there for sale, and it's probably dirt cheap <laughs> um, because right. these things are sold in, in mass, right? Um, I have right. to imagine that the entire um, pen testing community has some level of competition around it. How competitive is it? You know, maybe even internally, but compared with other organizations, where you know, is there a a cool factor for being able to break something or to discover something. Um, how, how does your team approach that? Yeah, totally. So uh, I like to say we're like the coolest team out there. There is a coolness factor. Um, and, you know, hackers want to feel this sense of belonging to a cool group of you know, people, smart people, the ability to have time to do research and do cool things like that. So, you know, that was also one of the reasons that I was brought in is to really kind of build that culture. You know, I was born in this culture. I grew up, uh, you know, I didn't tell you guys at the beginning, but I actually was, grew up a hacker trying to circumvent all my parents' rules because I thought they were dumb. And uh, so, so I get it. And so that's one of the things I'm working on here is how do we make sure we have that sense of belonging and the coolness factor does that you know do we get maybe some of our own special colors or something like that um because it is it's a very competitive market it's also a, you know a fairly commoditized market um so you know Pertivity is not looking to be the cheapest provider out there instead we're looking at how do we differentiate ourselves from our competitors you know what is the different value that we're bringing to the table that our competitors aren't and, you know, part of that or a large part of that is our people. So what is the investment that we can provide for our people? So I mentioned research time, um, you know, thought leadership. Are they interested in, you know, writing blogs, speaking at conferences? How can I provide the resources to them so that, you know, they have the job satisfaction and excitement of working here, um, you know, where they can really thrive? And, you know, I'm a big... Um, big proponent of, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, within my team, as well as the greater productivity and, you know, really driving that and making sure that, you know, we have good representation and there's opportunities for everybody um, to do the things that they want to do within my practice. It sounds an awful lot like um, the Jedi. <laughs> you've got the light side, <laughs> you've got the dark side, and then you've got the gray Jedis who are somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I think you have to have a good more probably you know moral compass to not stray too yeah. far away from the light side. I can certainly uh, you know see some things maybe skirting around the edges a little bit, but um, probably don't want to go down that way. Uh, I know I don't want to leave some time here to talk a little bit about Identiverse and also uh, something that our friends at the Identity Defined Security Alliance are working on, but. A, a, a stupid question alert coming your way, Christy. What's the best hacker movie? Oh, and why? And okay, let me press this. And, and why is it The Matrix? <laughs> oh man! So I actually don't watch movies. They put me right to sleep. So how about Mr. Robot? Not a, not a good question for me. Oh, I like Mr. Robot. I do watch uh, TV shows. Mr. Robot is good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, okay. it's a good one. <laughs> My understanding is that a lot of the hacks in that show are actually based on real mm-hmm. methods, right? I mean, it's obviously probably they stylized are. a little bit for Hollywood, but that there is sure. you know, some sense of realism in that space. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say there is a bit. And um, I also like how it is based on current events um, to some degree and that you can see how things that are happening in our world can be you know, used um, in a malicious way. Right on. Okay, so let's talk about Identiverse first. Uh, we tease it a little bit at the top of the of the show. Um, Identiverse 2021, the registration is open. Uh, I do feel like this is typically the best identity conference, uh, at least in the United States, that happens on a yearly basis. I've been to the last several. Um, I think I want to say the last at least five or six in a row. <laughs> uh, obviously, before last year uh, took, took a place. Uh, and Chrissy, you'll probably be happy to know, or maybe interested to know, that it is taking place in Denver this year, uh, Denver, Ooh. Colorado, uh, which is, I think, your neck of the woods, somewhere around that area. Um, yeah. It's going to be, so they have a couple of options this year. They have an online version uh, that will run, I think, for a couple of weeks. And then they have also an in-person version that's running in Denver. And we were kind of talking before we we clicked the record button here that, you know, Jim talked about travel. <laughs> uh, I love travel and I would normally be all over this, but I'm not so sure I'm ready for in-person quite yet. What do you guys think? Chrissy, maybe you start with you. Yeah. I mean, I am anxious to get out there again as well, but I think, yeah, it'll depend on, you know, kind of where we are at with the vaccine and, and, and things like that. But yeah, I don't know, TBD, TBD. But it is, you know, some of the movement in the vaccine space has been um, pretty positive as of late. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm totally ready if, you know, depending on vaccinations and how that all works. Jim, what do you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like June is pretty far out, right? That's three and a half months at least. Um, I think we're going to be much further along. And I'm starting to see people become more confident. Um I'm ready, man. <laughs> like I said, I want to jump on a plane and just like fly to another city and go to a hotel and work from the hotel or something because I'm I'm just getting sick of my own four walls. So yeah, I think uh, I'd favor in person at this point, but I, I hear where you guys are coming from. And actually the thing I'd be worried about the most is if the, you know, the local authorities decide, oh, you can't have a conference now. So I guess we got to kind of keep an eye on that, whether or not something like that happens, because that's what happened a lot last year, right? There were conferences that folks were afraid to cancel, not just conferences, but all kinds of events. They were afraid to cancel and then would cancel kind of as it got closer or postpone. And, you know, essentially nothing happened last year. But, you know, I I guess the my summary is June 21st through June 23rd, which is when it's scheduled for 
three and a half months plus from the recording of this podcast. So I feel like we're going to be a lot further along by then. So you take the optimistic view of it. You know, I didn't even think about that concept where you book, you get there, and then things get locked down. I didn't even, that hasn't even crossed my mind. <laughs> so I, I'm, that'll be interesting to see how it works out. Like I said, I hope, I hope things are a lot better, uh, you know, from now. Um, but I, I think it is rather bold and, you know, hopefully it pays off. We've got a lot of friends in the Identiverse space. You know, it is a fantastic conference. So even if you can't make it there in person, or you're not comfortable, definitely check out the, the online components because it's the, it's the who's who and the what's what for the identity space for sure. Um, so you can visit identiverse.com for that. And we'll have links to, to that in our show notes. The other thing I wanted to bring up was something very cool uh, that uh, our friends over at the Identity Defined Security Alliance are doing. And they've essentially proclaimed the second April of uh, the second week, uh, sorry, the second Tuesday of April <laughs> to be Identity Management Day. So that's going to be April 13th. And they really want to drive awareness around you know, the benefits of proper IAM and, you know, really kind of help extol the virtues and maybe highlight some of the folks that are out there. So they've got kind of a whole thing planned where they're going to take nominations for evangelists of the year, organizations of the year, and you can nominate people, uh, you can nominate organizations, you can nominate podcast hosts, uh, whoever you like, you know, for uh, different things from, from that perspective. So we're looking forward to you know, celebrating that with that group. Uh, they've got nominations open to the 23rd and you can head over to idsalliance.org for more information on that. Jim, any thoughts on Identity Management Day? You're going to get a cake? Um, I don't know if I'm going to get a cake, but I did, um, I did, what do you call it? Nominate you, Jeff. And I, and I encourage anybody who likes their IAM podcast with a side of sci-fi movie recommendations and references they should get out there and um, nominate Jeff as evangelist of the year. What do you say? Well, I'm in favor of that, but it's, this is a team effort. So, you know, of course I nominated you <laughs> as part of that because turnabout's fair play. And, you know, I think right now we're shamelessly pandering for votes. Um, Chrissy, what do you think about identity management day? Is that something that, you know, maybe we can set up a, you know, best IAM breach penetration tests, something along those lines to, mm, to talk yeah. about, you know, methods for that. Ooh, that could be fun. Only I'm only coming if there's cake though. I think that could probably be arranged, right? There's, there's, there's ways to shift that sort of stuff around. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I, I, we need like a, a pen testing day to work on that one next. You know, I'm surprised that there isn't like, there's a day for everything. And if you read my LinkedIn posts, exactly. I usually will scour the web looking for interesting things. Today is what was today? Today is National Pancake Day and National Compliment Day. Uh, so, um, you know, there's there's a day for it. It's also National Pig Day. And I was thinking, like, well, maybe I'll post something around, you know, pig and pigging out on an episode of a podcast. But it's actually about the good things for pigs, right? So maybe I, I wasn't, you know, maybe it wasn't the right message for that. But, I, I you know, I, I'm sure we can work on that. So I'm going to, I'll take credit for National I, or for, I don't know if it's global, we'll just call it global identity management day, because I had mentioned, what is it like five or six episodes ago that there should be like a day that is like dedicated to IAM. So I'm going to have to ask Julie if, uh, if I was the inspiration for that. And if, if any of she says, no, I might think it anyway. We'll edit her note out. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> It'll be just a, a very weirdly stated. Yes. That totally doesn't match the voice print at all. 
Um, all right. Well, you know, I think we've gotten off way off a tangent here. Um, check out Identiverse, check out IDSA. Chrissy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, is there any last words of wisdom that you want to throw out there uh, that people maybe who are interested in pen testing, you know, where can they get started? Um, you know, we'll have a link to you on LinkedIn. If you're cool with that, maybe people can reach out, ask you questions, that sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn. So definitely send me a message there and um, just check out the free resources. It's only a, you know, a Google search away. I mentioned a few here, hackerhighschool.org, OWASP, um, great places to get started. But thank you for having me. And I'm always, you know, interested in making people aware of that you can, be a hacker and get paid like so cool um so thank you thanks chrissy jim any final words of wisdom just a question for you jeff red pill or blue pill (laughs) purple pill (laughs) pill. (laughs) that's uh living in the real world but you watch a lot of netflix yeah i know what's going on but yeah maybe i'm uh skirting the edge a little bit let's just call me a gray jedi how about that there you go all right well i think that's a pretty good spot to leave it Uh, Chrissy, appreciate your time. Jim, as always, appreciate uh, your time as well. And uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and and, uh, leave it for this week. And we'll talk with you all in the next one. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.